our practice, we take a break from the book of Exodus this week to consider a question from the field of Christian apologetics. And the question that we're going to consider today is one that I think is without a doubt the greatest obstacle to belief in God in our time. In fact, quite possibly of all time. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, for his book, The Case for Faith, published around about the year 2000, Lee Strobel commissioned a nationwide survey in the US. And included in that survey was this question. If you could ask God only one question and you knew that he would give you an answer, what question would you ask? It's an interesting concept. What question would you ask? Well, the most common response that was given by roughly 17% of those people who could actually think of a question to ask God was, why is there pain and suffering in this world? Which is simply another way of asking the question that we have before us today. Why do bad things happen to good people? These are the questions that every one of us will have to address at some stage in our lives. Either you'll face tragedy or disaster or accident, serious illness, prolonged pain, cruelty or some other form of suffering in your own life and that question will be your question or you will witness or share in the suffering of others and that question quite possibly will be turned back on you. I don't imagine any of us will get through life without having to confront this question one way or another. So it's probably not a bad idea to have thought through the issue a little bit before the question is asked of you. And this question has its roots in the bigger issue of the whole problem of evil. And that problem can be summarised as follows. God exists. We know that God is all-knowing, all-powerful and perfectly good. Being perfectly good, God would not want evil to exist. He would abhor and prevent it. Being all-knowing, God would know how evil comes into existence. And being all-powerful, he would have within his power the ability to prevent evil from coming into existence. Therefore, some would argue that if God is all-knowing, all-powerful and perfectly good, evil would not exist. But of course, evil does exist. We know it exists because we see the irrefutable evidence all around us. Now, proponents of this logic conclude that such a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful and perfectly good, such a God and evil could not both exist. Therefore, they would say there has to be something wrong with the argument. Either God doesn't exist or he fails to make the grade on being all-knowing, all-powerful or perfectly good. And this is the sort of logic that underlies so many of the questions that we encounter when suffering strikes us or someone we know. The suffering person may not quite be able to um, lay out their logic as I've laid out that argument, but their conclusion stems from somewhere within that argument. They conclude that either God doesn't exist or that he's not all-knowing, not all-powerful, or that he's simply 
not good because he doesn't care enough to prevent the evil or suffering that they themselves have experienced. And that's the argument that we're going to explore today. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we're going to look at this question this morning on face value. Why do bad things happen to reasonable, ordinary people? People who are just doing their best, working hard to support their family, people who are taxpaying kind of people, people who've never committed a crime. Why does evil not discriminate? In fact, if we take that argument one step further, why do Christians, who are the children of God, suffer cancers or give birth to children with birth defects or get hit in our cars by drunk drivers or have our homes robbed or destroyed in floods or fires, have our businesses fail, our investments go pear-shaped or our bodies ache with pain in what seems to be a similar proportion to just about everybody else? Shouldn't God step in and do something about that? Evil is all around us and the evidence suggests that it does not discriminate. And for me, the epitome of that statement is seen in a very famous photograph taken by a South African photojournalist called Kevin Carter back in 1993. Now, Carter worked for the Johannesburg Star and it was his job to photograph the brutality of apartheid and also to cover tribal conflict in that country. And in 1993, he was invited to travel to South Sudan at the invitation of the UN Operation Lifeline to take photographs that would publicise uh, the famine that was going on in the area and the funding needs that they had at the time. And it was there that he witnessed the shocking reality of human starvation. And it was there that he went on to shoot a photograph that would ultimately win him the Pulitzer Prize for photography. And I'm sure many of you will remember this photograph. If you don't, just Google starving child and vulture and you'll find it there. Carter's photograph was published in the New York Times, but it made headlines around the world. And its image is burnt into my brain from that time. It featured a young, emaciated child, stick-thin arms and legs, distended stomach, typical of starvation, collapsed on the ground. And the child was head down in the dirt, completely exhausted, unable to walk any further towards the UN feeding centre. And just a few metres behind in the background lurked a vulture waiting for dinner. Now, Carter had reportedly been told not to touch any of the victims of famine because of disease. And so he waited for 20 minutes, hoping that the bird would extend its wings for a better photograph. And when he could wait no longer, he scared the bird away and watched as the child eventually rose to its feet and continued stumbling in the direction of the feeding centre. Carter is said to have lit a cigarette, talked to God and wept. The child, it seems, did recover but died 14 years later from malaria. Carter never recovered from what he had seen and the following year he took his own life. And Time magazine later ran a feature story on him and published a portion of his suicide note. It read in part, 
I am haunted by the vivid memories of killings and of corpses and of anger and pain, of starving, wounded children, of trigger-happy madmen, often police, killer executioners. I have gone to join Ken, who was a recently deceased colleague, if I am lucky. Pain, suffering and evil are all around us and they do not discriminate. Famine strikes, innocent children starve while corrupt officials eat their fill. Trigger-happy madmen do not discriminate. Young women are raped walking through parks on their way home from work. Fire and flood sweep away the homes of criminals as well as the homes of hard-working people. Children fall from windows, planes crash. Lung cancer takes the life of a young mum who has never smoked a day in her life. Dishonest employees embezzle funds and bankrupt honest employers. Mental illness brings a lifetime of hardship. A child makes one silly mistake and are disabled for the rest of their lives. A brain tumour prematurely takes the life of one who has given up everything to serve on the mission field. Bad things do happen to good people, of that we can be sure. And that bad things happen to good people is a cause of great concern for all sorts of people. It is a question that people of all ages wrestle with and so it is a starting point for many meaningful discussions and for that reason it is an issue that Christians should try to get their heads around. We humans like the world to make sense. We like things to be orderly. We like there to be consequences for our actions. And when something senseless happens to us or to someone we love, we try to rectify that, often in our minds, by finding a sensible explanation. Rabbi Kushner wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he recounts being called as a young rabbi to the home of a couple whose daughter, their only child, had recently collapsed and died without warning on the way to her college class. Apparently a blood vessel had burst in her brain. The rabbi recalled expecting their anger and their shock and their grief, but he was completely unprepared for their first words to him as he entered their house. You know, Rabbi, they said, we didn't fast last Yom Kippur. Somehow, this couple felt that they were responsible for the tragedy that had struck down their only child. Who taught them, says the rabbi, to believe in a God who would strike down an attractive, gifted young woman without warning as punishment for someone else's ritual infraction. And theirs is a line of reasoning that is a lot more common than you might think. It bubbles away unseen under the surface when life is good. But when things turn bad, it quickly comes to the surface. Among cancer patients, religious or spiritual struggles have been linked to health decline, with an estimated half of cancer patients grappling with faith questions. 
their feelings of being unloved or abandoned or punished by God are summed up in statements like this one from a patient. I trusted God that bad things wouldn't happen and bad things are certainly happening to me. Or this online question that someone posted, hi, I was just wondering, I'm going through a really bad time in my life and nothing is going right. I'm always sad and depressed. I do pray and I read the Bible every now and then, but I was just wondering, is God punishing me for anything that I've done lately or in a previous life? Somewhere along the line, a great many people, including when tragedy strikes, a great many people of faith have come to understand sickness and suffering and pain as divine punishment for sin. And when good people cry out in their distress, we Christians like to offer comfort. And if they take aim at God, we're quick to run to his defence. Sometimes we are a little too quick for in our haste to defend God, we can actually make matters worse. Ever heard statements like these? God must have a purpose in this. Or maybe God is trying to teach you something. Or it's not for us to question God in this. Or in relation to death, God must have needed him or her in heaven more than we need him or her here. What do those type of statements communicate to a suffering person? All of them, in one way or another, although usually unintentionally, all of them say, God did this to you. And that's not only a very hurtful thing to say to a suffering person, it's a terrible misrepresentation of God that causes one of two things to happen. Either people despise themselves for being deserving of whatever suffering has come upon them, or more often, they despise God for sending the punishment on them. And it's perhaps not hard to see why people might blame themselves for some misfortune that has befallen them. Read the Old Testament prophets, any of them, they are all full of obey and be blessed, disobey and be punished type warnings. Warnings that were given in the context of Israel's unique covenantal relationship with God. And in that context, and note it was a covenant context, a context of obedience, covenantal obedience. In that context, Israel's punishment was a logical consequence of their disobedience and their failure to heed the repeated warnings that were given to them by the prophets. So let's suppose we try and take that Old Testament concept of suffering and apply it to today. Suppose I leave the building at the conclusion of our, of this, our time together this morning and I head across the car park to my car. And at precisely the moment I head out to the car park to my car, a drunk driver comes careering through the car park. And the driver strikes me. He hits me head on, killing me instantly and I would presume causing great suffering to my family. Where is the warning 
And where is the logical consequence in that example? Aside, of course, from the obvious logical consequence that if you drink too much and get behind the wheel of a car, you're very likely to drive badly. My family in that example would have had no warning. No warning of anything that they might have done wrong. And therefore, their, the consequence, their suffering, is illogical. Even if they had done something terribly wrong, my death would not be an effective punishment because without any warning, they couldn't be expected to connect the two together. The Old Testament model of God causing human suffering as punishment for sin does not hold up in the New Testament because the type of punishment in the Old Testament is predictable and it follows an extended period of warning through the prophets or the law. And we've been working our way through the book of Exodus this year and we've seen exactly that formula applied in God's dealing with Pharaoh. In that case, Moses was the prophetic voice to Pharaoh and over and over again, Pharaoh was warned and given opportunity to change his ways and let the people go and over and over again, he refused. And so the suffering that Egypt endured was therefore a logical consequence of Pharaoh's repeated disobedience in the face of repeated warnings. And this is not the model that we see in the New Testament. In fact, it runs completely counter to what we read in the New Te Testament because the New Testament is built on a new covenant, a covenant where God's law is within us, written on hearts. So we turn now to the example and teachings of Jesus to try and help us make sense of this problem of evil. And on at least three occasions that I can think of, Jesus dealt directly with this issue of divine punishment. John chapter 9 is probably the best known example where the disciples of Jesus come across a man who has been blind from birth. And they want to know whose sin was responsible for his blindness. Because in the culture and times of the day, someone had to be responsible. Someone was being punished for something that they had done. Was it the sin of the man or of his parents, they ask? Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then in Luke 13, verses 1 to 3, Jesus is told of some Galileans who appear to have been killed by Pilate whilst offering sacrifices. And Jesus asks, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, he says. And then he continues to cite another example of unexplained suffering in verses 4 and 5. Or what about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than everyone else living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, he says. And then he uses each of these stories to speak of divine punishment to come and of the need to repent or to open our spiritual eyes. And you could think of this as a kind of New Testament or New Covenant reformulation of the Old Testament pattern of warning and punishment. Only by the grace of God, this punishment 
is delayed so that as many as possible might believe. And for Christians, ultimately, there will be no punishment, only reward. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the punishment for our sins has already been borne by Christ and so any pain or suffering that we endure here on earth cannot be punishment for our sins because that's already been paid for. Now those were Jesus' direct teachings. What about the example of his life? What can we learn there? Well, a characteristic of Jesus' ministry on earth was the healing of a great many people who were sick. Think about that for a minute. If that was a feature of his ministry on earth, what point would there be in him doing that if sickness was a sign of punishment from God? Would Jesus not be undermining the Father by healing the sick if their sickness were indeed a sign of God's punishment for their sins? All of these direct teachings and the example of Jesus show that our suffering on earth is not punishment at the hands of an angry God. They demonstrate that God is not picking out individuals in order to punish them or to teach them a lesson, but what they don't do is provide any real explanation for the evil and suffering that we see and experience. And to find that, we must shift our focus to one of Jesus' favourite teaching topics, that of the kingdom of God. Now, the mindset of Jesus' contemporaries concerning the kingdom was that the Messiah would usher in the kingdom with signs that would be unmistakable. The Messiah would free Israel from Roman rule and establish a glorious earthly kingdom. And we can see and feel the excitement of the crowd building throughout the Gospel of Luke as they anticipate the establishment of that kingdom And it culminates with their throwing down their coats on the road in front of him as he enters into Jerusalem, chanting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They thought that the kingdom was about to be realised then and there, but a careful reading of the preceding chapters of the Gospel of Luke tell us that that is not what Jesus taught them. He had taught them to experience something quite different. So if you'd like to turn now to our readings for today, we're going to begin in Luke 17. We're going to start from verse 20 and just read two verses, 20 and 21. And we're going to consider how this affects our understanding of this problem of evil. Luke 17, 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God, said Jesus, is already here. It's in the midst of you. And this is one of the clearest statements that we have from Jesus that his own ministry marked 
the coming of the kingdom of God, equaled perhaps only by his first recorded words in the Gospel of Mark, where he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the Gospel. So returning all the way back to the argument that was put forward right back when we began this morning, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing and perfectly good, and here Jesus has declared that the kingdom has come, how is it that we still live with evil? How can evil exist if the kingdom of God has come? Well, flip over now to Luke 19. Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem here and we're going to read from verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, we're not going to read the entire parable. I'll leave you to go through the whole parable. Our interest here is just mainly in this first part where Jesus is introducing a parable about himself. He's the nobleman who went far away to receive a kingdom before he returned. He's the king that the citizens hated and he is the one who has given his servants gifts to be put to use before he returns. You can read the rest of the parable for yourselves. Our interest here is the first part in which Jesus makes it very clear that the kingdom of God is still yet to come. It will come, he says, when he returns from heaven in all his glory. So comparing our two readings, according to Jesus, the kingdom has come, but it is yet to come. The kingdom of God has come, but it is still yet to come. Or to use what has become a popular phrase, the kingdom is now, but it is not yet. And in my mind, this is one of the most important concepts for Christians to get their heads around because it explains so much of our current reality. So I want you to kind of visualise what that might look like. Let's imagine that this bunch of flowers over here represents Eden. And over here, this bunch of flowers represents our heavenly home. And over here, God was present with his people and there was no pain and no suffering 
And over here, Revelation tells us God dwells among his people and he will wipe away every tear and there will be no mourning, no crying, no death and no pain. God dwells, God dwells, no crying, no mourning, no death and no pain, no crying, no mourning, no death and no pain. But something happened in this middle part here because the order of the day is mourning and crying and death and pain. And of course we all know what happened. Over here, the people rejected their king and that caused a great unbalance in the world. The people succumbed to temptation from another kingdom and they rejected their king. And that caused moral unbalance, it caused unbalance between the people and it caused unbalance between the people and the land that they had been given to dwell in. And well, you might say, if God is perfectly good, how could he allow such a thing to happen? knowing the pain and the suffering that sin would cause and having in his power the ability to prevent it. Why give people free will at all if sin and its associated pain and suffering are a possible outcome? And to answer that question, I think we can do no better than to turn to C.S. Lewis in his classic Mere Christianity. And this is what he says. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy that is worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other. And for that, they must be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. Now, the rest of the story between here and here is about redemption and restoration and the re-establishment of God's reign and rule. And somewhere along that line, in what would surely have to be God's most outrageous act of grace towards his fallen people, Christ was born. And when he grew up and began his ministry, he did so by announcing the coming of the kingdom. The time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And his ministry on earth was accompanied by signs that point us from here down to here. What did he tell the disciples of John the Baptist when they came to confirm whether he was the one to come? He said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news 
is preached to the poor. We call those things miracles. John called them signs in his gospel. They are signs of the kingdom. Hints for us at what it will be like when we get from this part here down to there. With the coming of the kingdom, Christians enjoy some of the benefits of kingdom membership, the forgiveness of sins, our adoption as children, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us and the gift of eternal life. But we're not there yet. We are living in the reality of both now and not yet. And so we will not know the fullness of all that is ours in Christ until the day that the King comes back in all of his glory. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I think because we're living in a kingdom that is now, but not yet. And so Christians must live and manage within that tension. We must battle sin and sickness and suffering just like everybody else. And we will endure death because this world is not yet fully surrendered to the reign and rule of Christ. But one day it will be. And until then, we must never lose sight of the fact that into all of this sin and suffering and evil and pain stepped Christ. Into all of that pain, he brings a healing. Into all of our troubles, he can bring peace. And into all of the world's hatred, he brings a very great love. And into the midst of all of our sin, he comes offering grace. And so what are we to do with all of this? It's easy to get bogged down in the here and now, but it's important to keep our eyes on the big picture. Our king is coming back. Read to the end of today's parable, Luke 19. He's coming back and when he does, we won't be living in the now but not yet anymore. We'll be living in the fullness of the kingdom in all of its glory. And when the king returns, he'll want to know what each one of us did with the gifts that were given to us. Were they put to use, to their fullest potential? Or did we get bogged down in fear, like the third servant in the story? Bad things do happen to good people. And in the midst of it all, we have a good and gracious king who extends his hand of grace to a rebellious people. Make sure you take it and hold on to it through these difficult times that we're living in. Sarah and Ed did put together for us a song which I had chosen, which I think is almost like an anthem for our times. It speaks of the situation that we're living in, times of suffering and pain, but also times of great grace um, that God has poured out on us. So if you get a chance later in the week, I urge you to go back and um, listen to the, the, the download that Kitat will put on YouTube for you and just find that song and just reflect 
on the words of that song. The song title is called Outrageous Grace. In a moment, we're going to have a go again at ending uh, with that time of prayer uh, that Pastor Glenn mentioned. That we're, It's a Christian's responsibility to be in prayer in the midst of suffering and pain in this world. And uh, the Council of Churches, the ecumenical um, churches of all denominations have a responsibility to be involved in that way. And uh, that is our responsibility as well today. So let me bless you and then we will just finish with that prayer and then afterwards please join us, log in for the morning tea via Zoom, which you will have the, the invite sent via the announcements. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face always shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you peace in these times. Amen.